Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to John Crudus and Molly Kinder today. Um, John Crudus is a Labour MP for uh, Dagenham and Raynham, a visiting fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, and visiting professor at the Centre for Sustainable Work and Employment Futures at the University of Leicester. Uh, John's new book, The Dignity um, of Labour, which I can highly recommend, um, explores the widening rift between the Labour Party and workers and seeks to consider how that relationship might be rebuilt. Molly Kinder is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Programme. She's examining the present and future of work, especially for low-wage workers, women and workers of colour. Uh, previously, Molly was a non-resident senior fellow at New America and director of research for its works, uh, Work Workers and Technology Initiative. Uh, Molly is co-author of the Centre for Global Development's best-selling book, Millions Saved, Proven Successes in Global Health. And she's also a trustee of RSA US. So thank you to Molly and John for um, joining us today. Um, John, I wonder if we might just start off by getting you, you to just sort of give a, a sort of brief overview for four or five minutes uh, about the basic argument of the, the, the dignity uh, of labour, what inspired you to write it, um, and why it's so critical for thinking about our sort of political economic future. Well, thanks, Anthony, and it's great to be here this afternoon. Um, I suppose the origins of it were, were a, a, a few years back, and I've been um, I'm becoming increasingly concerned about the position of the Labour Party. Obviously, we've just recently lost our fourth election in 11 years, and uh, we've got a mountain to climb in terms of winning power anytime soon. So that was the sort of issue that consumed me in my immediate sort of day-to-day -day professional life, being a Labour representative. Um, this, the second question, actually, was more about the resilience of liberal democracies in a more wider sense, given the rise of authoritarian populism. And I was most taken with some arguments Michael Sandel was putting forward a few years ago, which argued that this had a lot to do with questions of the dignity of labor and how we understand um, the work, the, the, what the role work performs in people's lives and a future inclusive growth strategy. Um, and those sort of debates about whether a new politics of work could help consolidate the future of liberal democracy itself, which sounds quite melodramatic, but given um, given the way that democracy appears under siege across Western market economies and beyond, actually, I think those sorts of debates are absolutely vital. And the, th the third element, which is linked into it really, is our enduring productivity, what is called a productivity puzzle in this country. It's a sort of benign word puzzle, but I think it's a crisis in terms of... Um, the quality and character of modern work. And I think that needs to be really confronted in terms of the politics of it. So those sort of three issues, both the sort of quite an instrumental issue about the future of the left, a wider question about the character and resilience of democracies. And thirdly, the question of um, how resilient is our economy, given that we, we are probably unable to recover since the economic crisis, just in terms of the productivity indicators. And all roads, therefore, to me, lead back to the nature of uh, labour and how we understand labour as an economic and social category. I don't mean that as a, as a political category. I mean it more in terms of the labour question, what the, the 19th century would have been called the labour question. Um, and that is, I think, to the fore now in contemporary bouts about the future, both politically and um, in terms of democratically as well. So there was a sort of bunch of issues. And I thought in the context of lockdown, I'm going to put my two penneth worth in and contribute an argument. And I make an argument about the left needs to rebuild a new politics of work because we've become too consumed with a sort of deterministic views around technology, which has written the working class out of the script, which partly accounts for our economic, our sort of political problems. And I also think it partly accounts for some of the rage and anger that we see across the body politics across the West, which partly accounts for the turbulent um, character of modern democracy and is also linked into 
um, the questions of productivity. So I think the book tries to sort of get into some of these deeper waters and provide a few tentative arguments about a route forward. Well, it does so very powerfully. And I think we'll explore all these different dimensions as we go through our, through our conversation um, this afternoon. Um, but I, I guess I want to start, I mean, a, a few pages in, there was, I, I sort of fished out a quote, and sorry to quote you back to yourself, John, but, um, but I, I thought it's quite powerful, actually, in, in getting to the crux of the matter. Uh, you wrote this, work can be a source of human dignity. It can provide meaning and purpose in our lives and confer a certain standing in the eyes of others. Yet it is not guaranteed to deliver these things. Work can be degrading, which, which for me really got to the got to the nub of it. And I think that is one of the reasons why. And, and, and Molly, hopefully you'll you, you'll be able to sort of relate to this a little in the US context. But it, it's one of the reasons why I see work as one of the sort of central political questions for the next generation. There will be a political battle over work. The consequence of what happens in the in in the environment of labour relations will have political ramifications um, as you as you um, discuss. So therefore work, not just you know, how do you achieve full employment or increase the employment rate, but something deeper than that feels very political again. And Molly, does that sound about right? And how do you think some of this might play out? Yes, Anthony, I, I, I completely agree with that assessment. And, and just to first acknowledge, I thought John's book was terrific. It was really interesting to read it as an American to, to recognize some of the similarities across the pond with some of our recent politics and how much even the Democratic Party had started to lose touch with workers that has always been the foundation of the Democratic Party and to start anticipating how the Biden administration is starting to shift some of that narrative. Um, but as someone who's also married to a Brit and follows British politics closely, I just really found it a fascinating indictment of the status quo, but then a much deeper reflection of the meaning of work, the meaning of dignity. And I loved bringing in the justice and the ethics um, into the conversation. So I just wanted to commend John for just a truly terrific book. Um, and I, I, I think that quote that you just surfaced is such a powerful one. And certainly in the US, we've seen this dichotomy so vividly during the pandemic that for some work is fulfilling, uh, it's, it's secure, it's a source of meaning, um, and it's frankly been safe for a lot of people. They have a lot of people, especially white collar workers have been able to crack on safely with their computers and do meaningful work that gives them a sense of identity and stability for their family. But almost half of Americans in jobs do not have that kind of benefit from their work. You know, my colleague, Martha Ross, who's a senior fellow at Brookings, just before the pandemic, put out this really disturbing research that found that 44% of workers are in low wage jobs. That's 53 million Americans. And John, I noted in your book, you had a similar stat from a different, it might've been 45%, I think in the UK. So very similar. We have kind of an epidemic of poor quality jobs that not only pay little, but in interviewing a lot of the workers who have these jobs, so much more is described. There's a lack of respect they feel from society, but also from their employers. Um, there's a lack of autonomy. Um, there is a precarity that is just pervasive then in their in their family lives and their personal lives. And I, I think that the battle that we just saw in the U.S. and Alabama for this group of warehouse workers at Amazon fighting to uni unionize that was ultimately unsuccessful. A lot of what was at play there was actually not about the pay of the work. It was about dignity. It was about the ability to take a bathroom break when you need one um, and not to be treated like a robot, frankly. That's some of the language. So we really have an epidemic in, the, in America that I think re resonates also across the pond with just far too many low quality bad jobs um, that could be meaningful jobs. They could give people the sort of things they want, the security, the dignity, the respect, and just simply fail to. And I think it's a defining political question of our time is how will as a society and how as a political party or um, as a government, we're gonna start redressing that. Just to, just to add to that, um, I used the idea of paradox, what, what it could be versus what it has become and increasingly is for so many of our fellow citizens to emphasize the political character of it. I mean, that's sort of a self-evident point, but actually 
you could argue that one of the extraordinary successes of certain types of politics over the last couple of decades is to decouple work from politics, um, to become a rational choice between individual employee and employer, a sort of rational economic exchange between two consenting adults. Um, so I emphasize this paradox of labor, what it could be versus what it can be, um, to emphasize the choices involved and to tr try and establish it as a contested political terrain again. That is the central argument, which I know the RSA have been pushing for many years. And um, the pandemic shines a light on a lot of this. I very much echo what Molly says, but also it also um, democratizes and reasserts the dignity of people that for many in politics have been written off as part of this wretched phrase, the left behind, and many of whom have written off through imminent um, uh, technological change and automation. Again, I see technological change and automation not as inevitable, but again, a question of political change and choice that we have. So it's a, it's a sort of question of putting democracy back at the heart of a politics of work. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We'll come back to all these things, but there's a lot of things sort of bundled up in here. But this, there seems to be something around parties, and certainly this is this is the case in Europe, uh, the UK, and the US, that were established on the basis of being uh, the voice of the representatives of grounded in uh, working class communities that somehow lost sight of the, the the sort of status and identity that's bound up with certain types of certain types of work and there, thereby open the door to um, different forms of sort of right populism to insert a different sort of culture, identity and values into right. the political conversation very successfully. Um, how, how did this happen? Um, well, if I can put my two penneth worth in, I think um, part of the argument, and this is where I really like uh, the Sandel thesis, if you want, his argument is that um, post-war democracy, social democracy was characterized by a moral desire to regulate civilized capitalism, to regulate the market through building the welfare state and the like. Um, it lost its post-war ethical character. Um, it was um, beaten back by the new right. And what came after in terms of Clinton, Schroeder, Blair was um, uh, a, a form of political reaction which lacked that moral or ethical character, became managerial, technocratic. So it lost its political ethic in terms of its challenge to um, capitalism and it became slightly more meritocratic in terms of what it valued, in terms of educational or financial achievements. And it gradually festered in terms of its relationship with what used to be its classical base, its working class base. And I think that's a very strong argument for the left. It needs to find a new telos. It needs to find new meaning. It needs to find new moral or ethical purchase um, because I think the there is an angry backlash amongst those traditional class components because social democracy has lost its soul. And I think a new politics of work is the first step in trying to reestablish that character across social democracy, um, not just in the UK, but across, um, across the Western market economies. And, and of course, Molly, in 2016, you can you can see this this process playing out with with Trump's success in in Rust Belt and Midwest and 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 all the rest of it. Do you do you see a similar dynamic in that sort of sort, sort of context? The sort of the, the the loss of connection opening up an opportunity for for, for populist voices to take advantage of. Absolutely, I don't think there's any question. And and you know. My husband and I stayed up late DC time to watch the um, the Brexit results roll in, which was just a few months before Trump's victory. And because we watched, we had that sensation of watching the BBC coverage and initially seeing the BBC um, journalist um, uh, sort of disbelieving some of the results. We had the same experience of watching the the election night when Trump won. Uh, the early results showed Trump so overperforming expectations that before any of my close friends realized Trump had won, I, I I sensed it, and it was in part seeing similar forces at play across the pond just a few months earlier. I don't think there's any doubt that Trump's victory was predicated on, frankly, the Democratic Party losing touch with 
the individuals that have so have so formed the backbone of the Democratic Party. We lost touch with just the sort of everyday needs of working class voters, but also even seeing them. I mean, I was involved in the Hillary Clinton campaign. I was proud to support her presidency. I will say, having helped organize in Pennsylvania, um, I think that the values and the ethos was not one that really saw voters in the same way that Trump did. Trump did a brilliant job of making people feel seen and respected who had for so long felt overlooked and frankly were overlooked in a lot of democratic circles. I think the Democratic Party started to emerge as a cosmopolitan coastal winners, economic winners um, in a coalition with a very large base of black voters that we turn out every election. I think a lot of those voters in in sort of non-urban parts of Pennsylvania that turned out in droves for rallies of Trump felt respected and felt seen. They also were sold a bill of goods. They were told that manufacturing jobs were coming back, which were never was never going to be the case. But I think it was fertile ground in part because the Democratic Party had lost touch, not only with seeing some of these um, these voters and these workers, but the platform didn't really speak to some of the, 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 the things that John argues for so passionately in his book, the dignity of work, making sure workers felt they had agency and they had power in the workplace and that they felt like there were leaders in Washington that were going to have their back and fight for them. Um, so I think we lost our way. I, I, I say we because I'm, a, I'm a, uh, speaking in an individual, my non-Brookings capacity as a Democrat. I feel like the party lost its way and um, and lost majorly to, uh, you know, to President Trump. And we felt that earthquake around the world. And it's a lesson we've had to learn. Can I just um, raise a point you raised there, Anthony, as well, about the future challenges yeah. in terms of politics? Because I think I think there is a real dilemma in the UK specifically. I mean, we have this productivity flatlining for over a decade now, but we see it as a puzzle, which is a relatively benign word. Um, previously to that, we saw a miracle under Margaret Thatcher. And before that, we had a disease around post-war um, sick man of Europe, you know, with strikes. And uh, and so you see this language, which has truncated our options now, which which is it, which, which means that if you accept it, which a lot of the political and uh, uh, industrial commentariat class, this productivity miracle under Margaret Thatcher, it's very difficult to diagnose the contemporary crisis around the work. Because if you've had this miracle, which is spiritual, uh, which you deify, it's very difficult to get out from under the legacy of such a description. Where, so you, you almost don't have the resources or the tools to diagnose and remedy what we're now living through. And that that is, I think, accounts for the sort of political paralysis around the politics of work and the need to rethink this. And that's partly why I think, especially on the left, they've, they've found recourse in um, sort of assuming that technology is the way out. You know, th th there's a silver bullet here in terms of knowledge work or the future in terms of the end of work. And that's a sort of get out of jail card, which I think is still the hangover from this Thatcher legacy of the miracle thesis, so to speak. I mean, the conventional approach to, to um to, 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 to really giving stimulus to, to productivity probably is to seek you know technological uh, steps to, to, to look at the, the mass implementation of, of, of technology to galvanize investment in that in some way to allow the knowledge classes that that, that, that sort of congregate around technology to earn and then spend and then that creates further that, that's that's a traditional sort of if you like neoliberal model um, and you know does that one you're you're, you're pushing back against that um uh, john but it, how do you account for the relationship between productivity and employment in that in in in, in that um in, in that context yeah well that, i think that is this is unfinished business in terms of the economic and political history of 21st century britain actually and, and the, the thatcher legacy i would argue that um rather than a miracle um, uh, a, a diagnosis of the Thatcher period is that it consolidated certain forms of low productive, uh, low waged work. And uh, paradoxically, um, rather than provide a miracle, it allowed for a short term productivity boost, not literally, literally because of the millions that were lost in manufacturing industry without a corresponding decline in output that would allow for a short term productivity stimulus. The danger is um, 
the short-term boost acts against the long-term investment in people and technology, which is what you're alluding to in terms of your sort of supply-side reform. And actually, the deregulation model pushed by Thatcher um, could actually consolidate those long-term post-war problems in terms of our comparative productive performance. Now, that's a difficult argument to to uh, navigate through when you've got such an enduring miracle thesis still embedded across the political parties. I mean, all the political parties who've subscribed to this idea. So I think there is a real, there's a sort of, uh, a, there's a, a land clearance needed in terms of really going back and rethinking um, the last 40 years in terms of its effect on our productive capacity, which is being played out, not just in the current, stasis around productivity, but also in Brexit and the, um, the the class reconfiguration. I see Brexit, rather than triggering a, a political realignment, as actually symptomatic of something that has been festering for decades. Now, in the American context, Molly, you know, the, the President Biden is pursuing, you know, a very deliberate strategy, it seems to me, of, 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 of aggregating public resource and stimulus, investment in, in infrastructure, in technology, particularly in a, in a climate environment, job creation linked to that, and then a wider package of support um, for, for, for families uh, and, and workers. You know, is, is, is that the, the, the plan that ties together productivity, dignified work, and political strategy? Uh, yes, but I think you're missing a few ingredients that are are the sort of trademark of the Biden approach. So I think, you know, building on what John was just saying, I think the the huge package that the Biden team just unveiled on infrastructure is a, is a historic investment in in what should build our productivity and also create good jobs at the same time. So I think this really huge infusion of if they can get it through Congress, federal money in our infrastructure capacity and our competitiveness and our productivity is something that a lot of presidents and presidential candidates have signaled they wanted to do, but Biden's actually trying to get it done. I think that's a hallmark is let's not, I mean, Trump's hallmark was doing a massive tax cut to rich corporations with a trickle down effect of, of lubricating the economy and creating jobs. Biden is going straight into investing in infrastructure and in trying to create good jobs. And I think the key thing there is with, if you read the White House fact sheet on the jobs plan, infrastructure plan, unions and worker power and decent jobs is sprinkled throughout. So it's not just an investment in infrastructure, it's coupled with reforming our labor laws to make it easier for workers to organize, explicitly acknowledging that the jobs that could be created with federal money will be unionized jobs, they'll be good jobs, they'll be enforced with safety. Um, and I think that's a hallmark of President Biden. He's not just saying, oh, we're going to throw a bunch of money at the problem. We're going to do it in a way that lifts up workers, gives them more agency, gives them more power. This is very unique um, in American politics. I mean, Biden has been rightly called the most pro-union president we've had in decades. He self-identifies as a union guy. Just yesterday, he announced a task force with 20 cabinet members across the administration, all about trying to empower workers and encourage unions. So this is, I think it's, a, but it's an important point to make is often previous um, administrations have done things that were ostensibly good for workers, but they haven't done it in a style that says, and we're gonna make sure workers are empowered along the way, they're gonna be decent jobs. Um, and I think that's very, it's unique. It's a unique approach that I think will have serious political ramifications. And it's one that I think may help de the Democratic Party succeed in, in bringing back some of those white working class voters that have defected to Republicans. I mean, Trump had high approval ratings for his economy because it was such a hot economy. Biden is trying to do the same thing with job creation, but doing it in a way that's more about the dignity and the power of workers at the same time. Mm -hmm. John, I mean, looking looking from afar, you know, looking at the sort of both the ethical and the the, the economic content of of the type of strategy that Biden's pursuing. How do you think that will will play out across this this side of the Atlantic? I mean, is it is it vastly different from the sort of McDonald's strategy, for example? I mean, there are there are some common elements, aren't there? There undoubtedly are common elements to it, and I'm really excited about the uh, the Biden plan. I'd like to go further, actually. I think I think there is an argument. I mean. We in the UK tend to look at the, uh, the, the sort of New Deal. We, we, we tend to look across the pond in terms of why we shouldn't incorporate a 30s style um, 
political project around uh, infrastructure and the like. What I think would be re- is really interesting is the Biden plan plus some of the later FDR attempts to codify new forms of economic and social rights in the Constitution. He failed, but his 44 State of the Union speech was going through about the right to work in decent, fulfilling work, the right to free education and health to be housed, to feel secure. There is a real radical agenda built around the, a conception, a reimagination of human dignity, uh, commensurate with the challenges of the 21st century, all wrapped up with the obligation on policies, politicians to stop the degradation of the planet. Now, that seems to me to be quite a radical prospective agenda that's being beginning to map out an unlikely figure of Biden being on the front, driving this forward. But um, he's he has proven to be quite an agile bridge between these different constituent elements. I don't think our recent history in the UK, we haven't been able to create such bridging amongst our leadership that Biden is performing with great, great flexibility and agility and creativity literally every day. It's, there's an awful lot of uh, lessons to be learned if we can just sort of um, keep ourselves together in the short term. We've got imminent elections. We've got a big vaccine bounce that the current government are uh, slips naming behind. We've got a, a quite a difficult internal culture. If we can just hold our nerve, I think there's real lessons to be learned from what's happening across North America. Yeah, I think this bridging point is a really important one. A, a lot of the analysis that we're hearing this side of the Atlantic around around Biden's political strategy is basically he went he went moderate, went centrist, predictable during the campaign, and then and then radical in office. And I don't think that's quite right because there, there, there was sort of deep bridging activity, you know, with the with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and so on, bringing on board the case of Cortez and Sanders into into dialogue and policy discourse. This seems to me to be quite fundamental and crucial to the political success that opened up out the sort of strategic opportunity to pursue the types of plans he's doing now. Molly, what's the I mean, I, yes, but only to some extent. We remember how crowded that primary field was and how many very progressive candidates there were that were capturing the imagination of our progressive left. I mean, Elizabeth Warren had a very passionate following and still does. Bernie Sanders has a very passionate following. And I will be honest, Biden did not have electricity. People were not energized or passionate about Biden. It turns out he was the best equipped for the moment to stitch together the right coalition, but it wasn't one that sort of energized a lot of people. It was only when he secured the nomination, and especially when he went toward the transition, that they were very savvy about making sure that AOC and and some of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's people had a real role. I think what's been really remarkable from a economic policymaking point of view is the personnel they hired. So Biden's personnel, especially on the economic side, from the Labor Department to the Council on Economizers to the White House, has been full of truly progressive thinkers and policymakers. And as a result, the 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 what's being crafted is more progressive than I think a lot of people anticipated from a Biden. Uh, candidacy back in the primaries. So I think a lot of the people that would have ended up in a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren um, administration have ended up in the Biden administration and it's really shaped things. I also think there's a new guard. There was a really interesting interview that Ezra Klein did with Brian Deese, who's the head of the White House Economic Council, who was a, a rising star in the Obama administration under Larry Summers and an old colleague of mine from many years ago. And he was asked by Ezra, he said, what's different about this economic team at the White House compared to the Obama administration. He said two issues are much more prominent, climate change and a recognition of inequality and the power of unions in that. I think there's a new guard. There's a new recognition of what problems we're facing and a new uh, a new sense of what it takes to solve those problems, which are just different than they were 10 years ago. Um, so I, and I, I think the progressive community is pleasantly surprised, I think, at the level of um, of where the Biden White House is on economic policy. Just right. to, it's, that's an interesting question you raise, Anthony, especially given what Molly's just said, because compared to that pluralism that you've just yeah. talked through, we are just trapped in these binaries in the UK. Leave, remain, young, old, class composition, urban, suburban or rural. And we see, and obviously, age, education, all of these drivers, and we are just locked into them without any bridging capacity that I can see. 
at all and with a culture that is just reinforcing this day to day. So where are the intermediary sort of brokerages that can secure some sort of platform or culture that can get out beyond these binaries? That that seems to me to be the sort of corresponding challenge we have just looking at what's going on um, and actually the way um, Biden himself has traversed some very complex terrain with really quite effectively and his hiring. I mean, it's quite interesting. A lot is driven some, from some very creative appointments he's made across yeah. his cabinet and his staff. And what can we learn? Can we learn about how we can transcend the trap game we are currently inhabiting around this these binaries that are just dead for us, deadening, because we will never win if we cannot get out from under this sort of lock that we had. But we, we have a lot of those same cleavages. Right. I mean, the suburban versus rural, the coastal versus the heartland. Um, you know, we have racial cleavages that are much more pronounced than, than over in the UK. But one thing that I think is a lesson to be learned from the experience so far is that Biden is leading with policies that disproportionately benefit workers at the lower end of the wage spectrum, but are popular across the country. So for instance, you know, the popularity of unions are at, are at a decades long high. 65% of Americans are, have a favorable view of unions while only 10% belong to one. Support for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is like two thirds support and even had a majority of Republicans um, in the middle of the pandemic. So some of these issues, I think there's something to be learned about issues that are pro-worker but have the support of voters in the suburbs and are more appealing, even if they don't directly benefit some of those, those um, members of the constituency. So I'm seeing in almost elite progressive circles um, a much greater appreciation for how broken America is when it comes to inequality and an earnest desire to fix that. Um, and so I think you're seeing much greater and uniting support for some of these policies than we've seen previously. And I don't know if it's the same in the UK, whether they're more uniting. They certainly are. They do feel like they are in the US. Interesting. And I think that, that bridging with purpose clearly is, is, is critical to it. And Biden just happened to be sort of through disposition and experience well placed to, to, to do that. Now, I, I want to pull us back out again, back into the... the sort of thinking about about work once more and and, and maybe some, some some broader reflections on 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 the sort of philosophy of work the nature of work how we understand it um and what we want to safeguard and support in and around it as well as within working relationships now i mean a simple question for you both on on on, on this one and what distinguishes work you know is it the payment of wages is that a key feature is work something wider than that is it not related to the wage relationship or of course of course it's related but is it is it wider than a wage relationship um as well um, and to notions of, of of wider human dignity how how do you see that the, the core element of what we would call uh, work which is a deep philosophical question i think john shall i first go that uh, well i would i would see it um and i go into it in quite a bit of detail but i'll bear you that sort of journey as a way that human beings act on nature um, as, a, as a definition of labour. And then there's a journey about how work itself became a commodity through the Industrial Revolution and you are separated from your own ability to work. And that then gets into this question of the paradox of labour, its dispossession from the owner of that labour and what that means in terms of politics. And that is to the core of... Um, both social democratic and socialist politics historically. And it has been, to be perfectly blunt, it has, it has defined the character of the three economic models, which has basically contested um, the character of capitalism, be they classical political economy of um, Mill, Smith, Ricardo, Marxism, uh, and neoclassical revolution from about the 1870s, all of which are defined by different ways of conceiving of human labor and its relationship to uh, commodity production. So it does define our lives in terms of the economic models that, that define what justice means. It also defines how we act in terms of our humanity, in terms of acting on nature over and above simple um, uh, existing. And it is a form because of that of, and it separates 
from animals because of, as Harry Bravman said, that discretion intrinsic to humans in terms of their free will, in terms of their own creativity. So, you know, there's a lot in that, in terms of that answer philosophically, but it, it, it has conditioned the history of capitalism, how we understand capitalism, but much more beyond that, it, its forms has defined how we understand different forms of social organization as well. Yeah, and Anthony, I would I would agree with, I mean, John is very eloquent. I thought his sections on the book, giving some of the history of this and the philosophical underpinnings were very powerful. I mean, instinctively, I think the, the remuneration aspect of work feels central to it. That's part of, I think, what we get out of that is the relationship to earning a living. The, the caveat I would say is that I think this pandemic has highlighted more than ever the unpaid labor that predominantly women um, carry in terms of our care work. And that's something I just wrote about in the New York Times, a piece applauding the, the Biden administration in putting so much money and emphasis on care work, both caring for the elderly in our family or in someone else's family or for our children. And, you know, my, my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer in the middle of the pandemic. At the same time, I had two kids who were displaced from school and daycare. And they talk about these sandwich generations of women who have, are trying to juggle jobs and care, care for the elderly, care for the children. And that's something that I felt um, this year. And it's made me much more aware of the, um, first of all, how, poorly paid that care work is when it's a job, but also the unpaid and unvalued work that family members are doing um, and not being recognized. And so I think it really is for us in America, it's a crisis of not recognizing the value of that work and not providing the infrastructure that enables it. I think that's that, that's that, that's right. And I think, again, the, the interesting thing around you know, defining care as, as a critical part of the national infrastructure, the, the social contract, if you like, is, is, is a very important move. And then I, I guess then the, the question flows from, from what is work um, is, is to, you know, the nature of dignity. And, and John, you, you chose focusing on dignity of work. And um, I guess that there are some who open questions around wider notions of economic dignity. Yeah. That of course are deeply relationship with with the work that we are remunerated for that we um, that, that that we do that is part of our status. Um, but but also there is a there is a wider economic need attached to the type of unpaid um, uh, labour work um, that Molly was discussing. Totally. I mean, I I focus on um, questions of dignity partly because. Dignity at one level is a question of status in some sort of hierarchy, or it's a sort of performative thing of acting in a dignified sense. But I mean it in a deeper sense of something that is lost, which is a sort of negation of humanity, which shines a light on who we are collectively in what we tolerate, forms of exploitation, indignity and the like. And I think um, that's why dignity, which is rejected by many as a useful useless concept i think it it speaks to that inherent humanity which should be to the fore of politics and it was to the fore of this pandemic and that's why i think it 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 has profound implications in terms of how we respect and honor our fellow citizens who's and dignity is a very the dignity of labor is a very old-fashioned word which is also why i like it because it's um it is a very different it has a a very different currency to a lot of the uh, that which uh, informs modern political discourse. And I think, therefore, it's an attempt to slightly change the terms of the debate in throwing in ideas that um, lie deep within my youth, but you hear very... Dignity, you're more often than not to find it in terms of how you manage to die rather than how you manage to live. And I find that is a really interesting thing about what we don't talk about in terms of how we live. And confronting death could actually force us to rethink how we live in a collective sense rather than just individually. And first and foremost is what we tolerate in terms of the abuses and the indignities of our fellow workers when they, our fellow citizens, when they work and care for us. And it is no, um, look, the most unrewarded work tends to be that which is mo invest most invested in how we care for each other. Now, how revealing is that in terms of a statement of who we are as a yeah. society in that we reward least that which is most important to us in terms of how we care for one another? 
I think there's, I mean, the, 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 the whole notion of dignity is a very, very, very powerful one because I think within it are bounded notions of, of empathy and, and fraternity and respect um, and, and so on, which, which are, are essential and we've, we've lost sight of in many ways. But the, there, is, there is a bit of a debate going on around dignity and, and what it's attached to. And, and there was, funny enough, just last week, there was, a, there was a tweet from Michael Tubbs, who's a former mayor of Stockton, California, where there was a basic income experiment. Mm. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. And he, he tweeted, dignity is attached to humanity before it is attached to work. So there's a discussion here around sort of economic security and dignity and how that relationship works in relationship to work. Molly, how do you uh, wrestle with these, these, these different definitional challenges? Well, first, I, I loved the sections of John's book that went to the origins of dignity, the term dignity as relates to work, and especially the, the, the connection back to Catholic social teaching as someone who grew up steeped in Catholic social teaching. And that inspiration from Holy Angels Academy and Christ the King in Notre Dame is what propels my, my focus. Um, I, I, it made me understand why I love the term so much and why I use it in my writing and frankly, probably why President Biden does as someone who grew up very Catholic. Um, so dignity to me is because I grew up almost in a religious sense thinking about that term, I understand just the inherent nature of it. And I think absolutely that dignity should be applied in the work context. So since the pandemic started a year ago, I've interviewed dozens of what we in America call essential workers. You call them key workers. Um, I've interviewed the, the low wage workers that have had to keep working through the pandemic, the cleaners in the hospital, the grocery uh, cashiers, the meatpacking plant workers, the, the care workers, the nursing home cooks. And these are workers who on objective measures have low esteem. Those jobs don't carry societal esteem. And suddenly overnight, we, rec we opened our eyes right. and recognized we could not function without these workers. And when I interviewed these workers so often, they said, coming into this pandemic, I wasn't respected. One grocery cashier from West Virginia told me, people look at me like a bottom feeder. But suddenly in the pandemic, you know, my customers and my neighbors are seeing that actually I'm valuable. They're seeing me as a human being. Not all workers I interviewed felt that way, especially those who don't interact with the public, didn't get some of that public recognition. But there's this gap where these workers at, at a core do not feel they're treated as respected workers, as human beings in the workforce. And that lack of respect is translated into tangible things like low wages and no health insurance, no paid time off, no upward mobility. But it's all there's something more basic about it. It's more human that they don't actually feel that society values them or their employers value them. And that's a lack of dignity. And so I write, and I found myself reading John's book, remembering that in almost every piece of writing I put out of Brookings about what a low wage essential workers are going through, I have a sentence, the indignity that these workers are sacrificing their families' lives on the front line without even the dignity of a living wage. That it's so, there, there's an indignity in there that they're being asked to sacrifice while many of us who are wealthy are staying home and they're not even getting the basics you would think from a decent job. So I use that term indignity to kind of get to just how unfair their work situation is. And while I, I am sympathetic to a broader definition of economic security that's a little bit decoupled from work. My personal view is that the reason why sometimes those $500 a month checks are needed is because work doesn't have dignity in it. That it's not giving you a wage that gives you the decency of a family sustaining livelihood. And so you have to turn to these workarounds. But if work had more dignity that, that recognized and valued those workers and paid them as such, then that dignity of work would go into the dignity of the person as well. So I, I'm, I'm more on the emphasis of if we had dignity at work and real dignity at work, we almost wouldn't need some of these other workarounds. We wouldn't have a concept called economic security as, as palpable because work would provide that. Can I, can I just add one, one point yeah. um, in terms of what you said, Anthony, as well? Um, um, dignity is not just the preserve of um, us Catholics, uh, but there's also secularized traditions that have focused it, as well as um, the way it's informed conceptions of human rights and rights-based models of justice through the ages. Um, I, I think over and above dignity at work, there's a whole question of the organizing potential of questions of human dignity to deal with the power of surveillance capitalism for what whoever wants to do and preserve the integrity of 
the individual, the communities. Um, and dignity is a word that can unite human rights traditions, secular traditions, as well as more spiritual or, or religious traditions around a, a rethink around um, social democracy, for a better phrase. And I think there's, there is a real unifying agenda, a bridging agenda, if you want, in terms of a future reimagined telos for the left, actually. Do you see, John, that, that expanding into a, a creative discussion between those, those who care about the notion of economic security and the, the dignity, the deep, deep respect um, of, of, of work that is, that is good and not degrading and, and, and supportive? Because I think in, in, in your book, you, I mean, you do discuss, um, obviously, universal basic income and you know, its relationship with sort of accelerationist Marxism yeah. uh, and, and neoliberalism. And it's had all those, those associations, of course it has. But the, the more mainstream association is with this wider perspective on, on human dignity and economic security. And you know, to tie it into the Catholic conversation, it's the, yeah. the line that sort of Pope Francis takes on these, on, on, on these questions. Is that, a, is that a sort of safe bridging conversation, do you, do, do you think? Or do you think there's still dangers in, in, inherent of moving the economic relationship decisively, potentially away from, from, from work? Well, I think there is a tension there. I echo what Molly said. I mean, the, I deliberately made this argument in this book to actually seek to re-establish an argument around work on the centre-left, if you want, because I was deeply concerned about the trajectory of the debate, which is almost often, and I don't accuse the RSA in any way of this, um, in debates around UBI, it became a sort of, it became a sort of um, silver bullet as an antidote to all sorts of contemporary challenges around modern capitalism. Um, and it lacked nuance, the debate, and it also lacked a deeper understanding of the history of the debate. So I tend to be slightly more cautious in the embrace of UBI. And I think arguments for UBI, um, some of them are wrong, but there are other much more thoughtful contributions around this debate. And it, the UBI debate, rather than an, an absolutionist debate, a sort of, um, it could become a bridging debate in and of itself, actually, if it's conducted the right way, which could bring together different traditions. Um, but that's a long way from where it is at the moment, I'm afraid, because there's an awful lot of, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an awful lot of um, uh, contributions which are premised on quite, absolutist views about the future and technological nirvana and uh, the end of capitalism and all of this. And I think we need to be careful about all of that because the danger is it can play back into this debate which disrespects things that are very important in people's lives. And it can actually swerve around seeing work as an inherently political contest. And the danger of that is you concede the politics of work to the right. And I think that is a real danger in this debate if it if it misfires around UBI. Now I know, I know, um, I've been criticised quite heavily for my views on UBI, uh, but I think that's a debate. It is a it's a big idea, and I like the the bigness of the idea. I just want it to have a more plural quality to that debate, if you want. Luckily, at the RSA, we're we're, we're not um, we haven't been tempted by any of those sort of technological sci-fi deterministic style um, arguments, um, and um, we, we take a far more uh, nuanced perspective and do relate UBI to economic security and and the future of good work yeah. uh, as well. And I think that's that's a that's a critical and capacious conversation. And I think your criticism, by the way, of uh, much of the advocacy of, of of UBI is absolutely fair. I think hit, hitching that wagon. To, to, to notions of sort of work obsolescence is just a big mistake. And, and, uh, and if it's not a dead end, it should be. Um, so you know, in the spirit of the rest of the conversation, th this is one of the, the bridging elements that I think could absolutely be, 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 be interesting with an emphasis on, on, on the future of, 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 of good work as Molly emphasizes. So, I think we've covered quite a lot of terrain. Uh, I'm sure we missed a lot. Um, uh, what we've missed is absolutely covered in, in, in Molly's work and John's work. And just a final question for both of you, really. I, I mean, if, if there's one thing that you want to see happen, one big step forward that we need to take, you know, a lever for change that we need, need in place, what is that, Molly? Do I have to pick one or can I just do a dual? Can I do it? I'm going to do it too. I, I, I think the two most important policy changes that that 
would empower workers and provide more dignity at work are for the US raising the federal minimum wage to a decent level. It's just it's just a travesty that we're at 725. I think we're something like 40 or 50% less than the UK in terms of our national minimum. And in this country, we allow workers to have nowhere close to the dignity that they deserve from a compensation point of view. So one is change the, uh, really raise the federal minimum wage. And the second thing I'd say is reform our labor laws, that right now workers just do not have the power they need in the economy to stand up for themselves, have agency, shape their working conditions, and have a voice. We've got it all wrong. Companies are far too powerful. Workers have so little power. And I think that explains a lot of uh, the hollowing out of the middle, the lack of economic security. So I would say if America could finally tackle our labor laws and make them more tilted toward workers and less to companies, I think that would provide a lot more dignity. Brilliant. Um, well, there's there's loads of policies in the in the book. I wouldn't pick out one in particular. I would. Um, there is an old um, what was called Section um, Eleven of the Old Employment Protection Act. Schedule 11, which uh, sought to extend um, the terms and conditions um, negotiated in organised sectors into unorganised sectors. It's a, it's a real hangover of the 70s labour law legislation, but it was a really, could have been a really effective tool to try and create new flaws under the labour market. It has a highly contemporary feel to it, even though it's some um, 40 years old. Some sort of dusted down Schedule 11 so that we can try and put flaws under some of the unregularized um, sections of the economy and the uh, modern degradation of work that is such a visible thing. Literally, you can't pick up a paper in London at the moment without seeing extraordinary stories of uh, modern indignity around work. So we need to create new flaws under the labor market. A good first step would rethinking Schedule 11. My my place placed economic security at the centre of policy making, um, actually, and I, and I do it in the form, John. You have this very elegant sort of work covenant um, in 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 your book, and I I just probably steal from that quite prolifically, but make it an economic security and and dignity covenant, um, and add some elements to it, including some support for incomes outside of right. work that is uh, less conditional than they than, than they currently are. But look, I think we've covered a wide range of issues, uh, a wide range of perspectives. Thank you so much, uh, Molly Kinder and John Crellis. We've unfortunately run out of time. Uh, the discussion will continue uh, on and offline. Thank you all uh, for, for, for tuning in. Um, and, and please do take a good look at the work of Molly and uh, John's uh, Dignity of uh, Labour. Well worth a read. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you Thanks very much. much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.